Okay, Katie, moment you've been waiting for. Coming for you, Katie? What about your books? Already read them. back, dear listeners, to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we take a trip upriver to cast our eyes over the films of Amblin' Entertainment, to relive the glory days, and hope that past sins don't come back to haunt us. I am one half of your host, Andy Godian. I'm the other half, Josh Grant, and I wondered how you were going to do that opening. <laughs> <laughs> a little harder than most, this one. <laughs> yeah. How glib do we be? <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, it is just me and Josh currently now, as we do housekeeping bits up top here. But we will be joined later on in our episode here on Martin Scorsese's 1991 uh, psychological thriller Cape Fear. We will be joined by a uh, film critic and broadcaster and podcast fellow podcaster Hannah Flint. Uh, we just got off the call. She was delightful, and we look forward to sharing that conversation with you later down the line. But first off, we're gonna we're gonna do our our usual shtick of uh, giving you the older synopsis and production note section. Um, but first off, how are you, Josh? <laughs> I yeah, I'm pretty good. To ask you this. <laughs> no, fine. I mean, we, we we speak on a pretty constant basis, so it's uh, this is. Purely for the I listeners' know, but benefit, isn't maybe it, the really? listeners like it's just like oh, Andy, Andy never asks how Josh is. <laughs> I'm He's well. Just all business, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, my friend. I'm very well. We have plans to watch the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Netflix after this, so I'm I'm very excited to get stuck into that trash with you. <laughs> how are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, very jazzed by conversation we've just had and uh maybe less so than uh about uh texas chainsaw but we'll see <laughs> no, it was it was a delightful conversation and it's a very very uh very great guest to have on and talk about this particular film it's nice to see i love when we have a guest who is very into the film and very enthusiastic about it it's always nice yeah. to ride that excitement which i think it's been largely it's been pretty much Every single one so far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, luckily it was just you and me for your dads and your alwayses. And your... Although we had Griff for the money pit, which sucks. Sorry, Griff. 
not sorry. I like the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, whatever. It's fine. Anyway, well, things, uh, take, things do take a bit more of a serious turn this time out with uh, mm. Cape Fear, which uh, I think is probably decidedly the most unambling amblin film we've covered so far in this here run, and we. We should say up top that this is a film and an episode that deals with talks and discuss, uh, we discuss um, moments of sexual violence and sexual assault. So if that, any of that is any kind of uh, a trigger topic for you, then please, by all means, um, skip this one if that is something that, uh, yeah, proves triggering for you. But um, otherwise, um, we hope you enjoy the episode that we've got coming up and to let you in on a bit more of a taste of what Cape Fear is, I'll hand over to Joshua Glenn to give you the synopsis for Cape Fear. Okay, so in Cape Fear, Max Cady, played by Robert De Niro, has just been released from prison after 14 years. Uh, after using that time to teach himself to read and study law, and extensively the Bible, he's armed with a plan to exact revenge on the man he believes responsible for putting him there. Sam Bowden, played by Nick Nolte, husband to Lee, played by Jessica Lange, and father to Danielle, uh, played by Juliette Lewis, is a lawyer living in North Carolina. He represented Max during his trial for the sexual assault and battery of a 16-year-old girl. After seeing the result of this violent outburst, he purposefully botched his defence by burying a report of the girl's alleged promiscuity, which he believed would influence the jury to lighten Max's sentence. It's not long before Max has tracked down Sam and his family. He begins his reign of torment by first laughing obnoxiously during a screening of Problem Child, and then murdering the family dog. But, as Sam finds out when he attempts to have Max arrested, there's no evidence to tie him to the crime, so he walks free. And thus the pattern continues, Max terrorising the family in ways that are increasingly threatening, but not leaving a fingerprint for Sam to launch a case on. When Max harasses Danny at school, Sam reaches breaking point. He asks the private investigator he's enlisted, played by John Don, sorry, Joe Don Baker, to send thugs to beat up his stalker. Things don't exactly go according to plan, though, with Max first outmaneuvering the would-be attackers and then successfully filing a restraining order against Sam for orchestrating the attack. Sam and the PI formulate a plan to lure Max into the Bowen home so that he can be shot in self-defence, but Max is once again one step ahead. So, desperate, afraid, and guilty in the eyes of the law, Sam takes the family to the only safe haven they have left, their houseboat on Cape Fear River. Unfortunately for them, Max has strapped himself to the bottom of their car, and there are no rakes to slow him down once he unbuckles himself. (laughs) (laughs) Had to get it in early, didn't you? So a bit of a tonal maelstrom there. Um, you do have the sensitive topics that you flagged in your trigger warning up top, but then you do have some very, very, very silly beats like Max strapping himself to the bottom of a car. Um, <laughs> as parodied famously in the Simpsons episode Cape Fear. Yes, which I imagine is m- most of particularly our generation's uh, introduction to the property of Cape Fear. Uh, it certainly Is that was the case? for me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. So, yeah, so t- t- talk us through your, your initiation with the, the Cape Fear as a concept. 
I mean, it absolutely was that episode. It's one of my favourite Simpsons episodes and one I can remember watching mm. very, very young in the late 90s. Um, and not having a single, like, not a clue that it's a riff on a, mm. on a movie at all. And just assu- assuming it was a fun sideshow Bob episode. Um <laughs> with a much more dramatic score than usual. <laughs> yeah. I think it is probably I would I would go so far as to say I think that Simpsons episode is the defining Cape Fear piece in in the world. Throughout all medias, I think the Simpsons yeah. have the defining word on Cape Fear. More yeah. so than Scorsese I... or, or Thompson. <laughs> Yeah, like you say, particularly for 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 people who grew up in a similar sort of time as us, it's literally the like the yeah. the OG point, the primordial. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were saying to like Hannah just before the call that like the the Simpsons is such a Rosetta Stone for like these kind of mm. uh, movies that like when you particularly when you do discover them, it, it can be a little hard to take certain moments seriously because you've seen it lampooned in a yeah. in a simpsons episode <laughs> but, well, um, yes. my girlfriend recently started the simpsons from the very very beginning so like we're talking simpsons roasting on an open fire and i've been watching it along with her and it's so nice seeing her go oh that's where that comes from Cult, like yeah, she's gonna suddenly understand a lot more of your references that you're <laughs> banding about the house. <laughs> and, and she's she's in- increasingly saying, "Oh, so you're not actually very funny or interesting. It's just most <laughs> Simpsons bits that you're doing." Okay. Uh, but uh, the actual film Cape Fear, I watched it the first time when I was uh, so I would have been seventeen actually. I think it was the end of the first year at Sixth Form. Um, because we were doing a module that was looking at remakes, um, largely focusing on War of the Worlds, but uh, outside of that, we were kind of encouraged to look at other kind of examples of the remake and the original. So I watched both the uh, Scorsese version back when I was 17 and the 1962 original, um, pretty close in proximity. Um I remember it even at the time thinking it like felt like such an outlier for Scorsese. Yeah. Um, so like even that even at that point I, I wasn't I hadn't seen too many Scorsese films. I'd seen your Goodfellas and Raging Bulls and uh, the, the Departed, Taxi Driver, che- probably chiefly. Yeah. Um, and so, but like had as a nerdy film teen. I was very much aware of Martin Scorsese. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, even then it felt like quite the outlier. Um, what was your kind of similar introduction to? Uh... Pretty much, yeah. M- much. Uh, we we grew up in the halcyon days of um, after school. You'd, you'd go to your mate's house perhaps and have some dinner, and then you'd watch the end of Weakest Link, and then after that it'd go straight into The Simpsons, and they were doing. When we were about the age to, to do that, they were doing the reruns of the classic, what we now call Golden Age Simpsons. So Cape Fear was very much one that we caught on, you know, repeat in those scenarios. And also, um, as as former guest Mike Perry pointed out, there were th- those those uh, VHS tapes that compiled for similarly themed episodes of The Simpsons mm. were pretty ubiquitous in our lifetimes. And uh, my cousin had the 
Springfield Murder Files or whatever it's called video, and I, I routinely borrowed it from him, and that was that was the um, the flagship episode, and that video was the Cape Fear Simpsons episode. So it was very much it was very much that, and I think I'm not quite sure how aware I was that it was a parody of anything, um, but I know my parents yeah. were. My parents are big, 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 big Cape Fear fans. It's, it's, right, they okay. Used to, yeah, they used to refer to it quite a lot. They probably they probably will have seen it in the cinema, I imagine, when it came out. And uh, it's one that, that, that came up quite a bit. It's always one that they go, oh, yeah, that, that oh, yeah, Cape Fear, you got to watch. When you're old enough, Josh will show you Cape Fear. And then um, one day I was old enough, and I, th- I can't think when it will have been now. It was, it's a long, long, long time ago. I reckon I was in my early, mid-teens, perhaps. And we watched it. And I was quite taken aback. Um, the thing that really stuck in my head over the years was the end, the, the final sort of 15, 20 minutes when it does go, it becomes this big, uh, almost giallo monster movie type thing with a whirlpool effects and this miniature boat thing getting thrashed around in the river. And I remember it being quite goofy and quite, um, like you say, an outlier for Scorsese. And looking at it again in this context, an outlier for Amblin. It's a weird, mm. odd duck of a film. Uh, but yeah, it's not one that I held in, in, in particular. It's not one that I disliked at all, but it's not one that I held in particularly high esteem. Um, and so it's quite exciting watching it again with these fresh eyes and looking at it um, with the subsequent Scorsese knowledge I've accrued and also in, in the context of the Amblin filmography. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen it in a good, you know, well over 10 years. Maybe yeah. sort of. 15 or so mm. and i hadn't seen the original at all I, I i only i only watched that for the first time a few days ago and uh yeah great if if you're listening to this uh listeners and you haven't seen the original i would seriously recommend giving this a pause going and watching that and uh, and then watching the scorsese again on netflix afterwards and uh, and then coming back because it really does inform your viewing of of the new one i think having seen what it the does, original does yeah it really makes you kind of see what Scorsese is really driving yeah. for and his um, what his kind of pull to the material is. Um, speaking of his pull to the material, let's... Uh... <laughs> hey, hey, my man. <laughs> Let us uh, turn our attention towards uh, the production notes se- section of the show. Uh, as we have discussed there, the film is, of course, based on the 1962 noir thriller from director J. Lee Thompson, uh, starring Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum in the um, Sam Bowden and Max Cady roles, respectively. But that itself was based on a uh, no- novel, The Executioners, by John D. MacDonald, which itself deals uh, with um, war veterans rather than a uh, more kind of domestic lawyer and setting and what have you. Have you read um, that? No, I haven't read that. Uh, no, there's, there's quite a good breakdown of the kind of di- like the major differences between the, between them, but like very much the idea is still the crux of the idea is very much the same. The kind of um, man who feels hard done by despite um, the violent nature of his crimes, and then pursuing putting that putting that violent energy towards the man they the individual that they seemingly blame for their fate. Uh, without accepting that their own res- responsibility in the in where they end up, but um, the project began at Amblin initially as a project for one Mr. Steven Spielberg, um, who was the man who originally brought it to Robert De Niro, 
But um, as development got on, Spielberg very much kind of get, got the idea, got the feeling that this was a tale that was a bit too violent for him and he wasn't particularly the right fit uh, for the material. So with Spielberg kind of dropping out of that capacity still very much stays on hand in the development as a producer, at least for now. Um, with And De Niro was still very much on board. So the two together began a search for um, a new director. And the first person very much on both of their lists was one Martin Scorsese. De Niro, of course, already having a very fruitful relationship with Scorsese, having done Taxi Driver and like Mean Streets. Raging Bull and good, and literally they would have been in uh, in the right in the throes of making Goodfellas at this time when they were considering development of Cape Fear. Um, but Scorsese himself was initially a tad reluctant to take it on. Uh, the director had said, um, "Do I have a Martin Scorsese impression I can throw out here? It's not one I'm I've sure ever can, tried." I, we can workshop. Yeah. No, I I haven't got one either, but we can together. I think we can work through yeah. it. Yeah, let's leave we all this in as well. Here. Yeah, I love the old Hollywood studio films. I wanted to see if I could do a western or a thriller. You know, see what I could do within those uh, parameters. Uh, so he wanted to see what he could do with the kind no, of classic. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah it's up and 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 the picture. No, I I go to um, you, were, you went Richard Tarantino Hines there with it almost. That's <laughs> what <laughs> I did. Yeah. Hey, it's a very hey, no, I don't even know what that was at all. I'm going to stop trying and leave you to do this. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so in Scorsese's mind, he was like looking at it as, uh, and in his own words, the. Original was a perfect B-film, a perfect noir. You cannot do that again. What What would I do to add to that? So that was his conundrum and his kind of... the. You've gone Shatner now. That was William I've Shatner. I've gone Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> the original was a perfect B-film. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very much why he yeah, was sorry, reluctant yeah. to, kind of, to kind of take the reins on this project because he didn't know quite how he could find a way into that sort of material or even that kind of cinematic landscape working for what would be a Spielberg production as what like as I'm sure uh, many listeners know Spielberg and Scorsese are both part of the the kind of movie brat era that um, was birthed out of the new Hollywood new new wave Hollywood as it were in the 70s including the likes of Francis Ford Coppola George Lucas and Brian De Palma they all were very much uh friends and kind of bounced ideas off one another but never like beyond Coppola kind of producing a lot of the earlier works of Lucas and De Palma they never really and and of course Spielberg and Lucas working together they're kind of like particularly Spielberg and Scorsese never really have any kind of crossover on a professional capacity this is very much the only one where they do have that kind of uh, crossover despite being good friends and coming from that same crop of filmmakers it is interesting as well how how probably i think of all those brats they're i think they're the two most diametrically opposed in terms of their sensibilities and the way they view the industry because spielberg's always been even from the off he was quite uh studio-minded and yeah commercially driven not to say he's not as much of an artist because he certainly is but scorsese's always operated on that peripheral realm and he's yeah. always kind of he's been a bit more, more spiritual than and yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's an interesting, um, you know, collaboration, those two being together. 
Yeah, so and I can certainly understand how Scorsese, particularly at this point, uh, being in the throes of Goodfellas and not really wanting to pay attention to uh, the pitch this time, uh, and not really knowing how he could bring that sort of his own sort of edge to the material. Uh, but Scorsese, uh, Spielberg, and De Niro weren't going to take no quite so easily, and uh, I, but even like the writer Wesley Strick at the time was saying he couldn't really believe it that it was going to ever end up as a Scorsese picture. It was something you just couldn't really see <laughs> yeah. happening at all. Um, I think one of the turning points was uh, a, re- a table read that Spielberg arranged in New York um, around the late 80s, early 90s, where um, that featured uh, De Niro reading as Katie and then Kevin Klein and as uh, Sam and Phoebe Cates as the daughter Danny doing um, the the table read. Um, which seems to have been the thing that slightly started to at least got uh, Scorsese to kind of start to realize how he could work his uh, work his magic on it, as it were. Like he even said to Stephen after that, he's like, "I, he, I really don't didn't like the script." And Spielberg's response to that was like, "Well, then change it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as long as the family's okay, do what you yeah. like. And so, and also at this time, reportedly, uh, Scorsese was the one who was initially attached to Schindler's List, and there was a kind of moment where the two realized that the other one was probably a better fit for the material of uh, uh, the movies that they were working on. So there was a a wee bit of a sw- switcheroo that occurred behind the scenes in terms of who was working on what property. Um, so after that kind of table read, De Niro, Scorsese, and Strick all got together in a room. And uh, Scorsese set about kind of reworking the script to fit the mold of where his uh, motivations lied and where his interests lied. Um, and according to Strick, a lot of the stuff that Scorsese removed were details and uh, moments that he had added specifically during a rewrite um, when he had Spielberg in mind as the filmmaker. So they were all very Spielbergian touches with... Uh, moments of kind of bigger showmanship that they talked about one sequence in which which would have been directly replicated the original where uh danny was supposed to be chased by katie throughout the school and there's a moment where she's hanging outside of a uh the, the on the side of the building holding onto a curtain rail and the um r- rings on the top of the curtain were breaking off and he, she was about to fall and there was like you know this tense moment of practical action uh, which so the sort of moment that Scorsese kind of looked to the script and went, that's something that Stephen can do very well, but not something that I'm particularly very interested in or feel that um, really feel like that's in my wheelhouse. Um, so for for Scorsese, the thing that most interested him was the Bowden family themselves and their domestic misery and the details of their unhappiness, and that's kind of where he ends up getting his claws into into the material. And I think that's very, very much, uh, very much in a reflected in the film itself, uh, and and on a business level, it also fitted the bill for the promise that Scorsese had made to Universal Pictures to make two films for them after their support in the financing and the uh, distribution of uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, and uh, it was also very hard to ignore De Niro's own um, passion for the project as uh, I'm sure it's very clear to film fans for 
the amount of times that they've worked uh, together across the years. And Scorsese said, if De Niro is excited about a character and can see something in it, then it, it's something that I should give my attention to and see if I can see what he sees and what his own uh, switch and what is it, what is the, what is the thing that he can see in it that could make it kind of special. So when it came to De Niro's approach for Katie, it's a very, it's a very different uh, take on the character to what we see in the 1962 movie, which is a much more kind of quiet ruthlessness, still, still very much ruthless, but in a very, very different manner to the kind of extreme that De Niro goes to here. Uh, De Niro's processes um, involved him kind of both himself meeting people and uh, getting other people to kind of tape record uh, criminals who uh, who had been convicted of the same crimes as Katie and trying to get kind of get in the mind as it were and get certain details of how this guy would behave based on that. And of course it also required him to um, get in incredible shape i think it's purported he got to like three percent body fat for this role um to try and make (laughs) say again no i was just i was just giggling at how ludicrous (laughs) to a man who's currently currently drinking a beer (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the idea was to very much make the the body of katie a lethal weapon in and of itself and uh, he would work out for four to five hours each day before actually then going on to set to shoot and uh, with most of the kind of uh, topless scenes that we see with KD and the kind of real like moments where we are seeing his physique were saved right until the end of production to get it to the point where um, he had been working out on the most and it had gotten to the point where it was at its most uh, physically impressive and imposing. But kind of turning the attention to the Bowden family, which is the kind of uh, tension within that unit that... Um, really appealed to Scorsese to tear into and like kind of have this deconstruction of the picture perfect American family. I mean, even look at the poster of Cape Fear and it's a picture of them torn in half with uh, Katie hovering above it, almost to suggest that it's mm-hmm. Katie the one who's causing the destruction. But as you'll hear in our discussion with Hannah, that's that, uh, that destruction is already ongoing before Katie um, uh, comes on the scene. Uh, for Sam Bowden, uh, Scorsese initially wanted Harrison Ford, but Ford himself was much more interested in the Katie role. But um, of course, De Niro was already filling those shoes. Um, so the, his attention. Can you imagine Harrison Ford as Katie? No. Can you? Can you? Can you? I really can't. That in any way, I can see him as I can see him as Sam, yeah. but I cannot see him as as Max Katie at all. No, I struggled to mentally picture it. I must say. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for Sam, they turn their attention to the six foot two or six foot three frame in Nick Nolte, who's, um, of course, uh, had worked with uh, Scorsese on the, his uh, New York Story segment years before, but hadn't uh, initially been in consideration. And it was Nolte himself who kind of pushed to play Sam to kind of um, show another side to himself as a character actor. Uh, in the role of Sam's uh, wife, Lee, you have Jessica Lancaster, who brings a, a lot of... Uh, um, there's a lot of collaboration from a lot of the cast members here, from what I could tell, um, reading into it, and uh, particularly from Lang, as uh, she 
uh, Scorsese, Strick and De Niro were all very open to basically allow her to essentially write the character more than what was on the page uh, to the point where she even was the one who who devised the fact that her and Katie should have a moment where they meet together before the final act. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, she had uh, had nearly been cast in Raging Bull uh, just 10 years prior. And uh, so she herself had said it, uh, she was very keen to work with De Niro and Scorsese and probably would have said yes to whatever it was that they were coming to her with anyway, um, but was happy that it was something that she herself could kind of add more facets to and create more yeah. conflict and deliver a more layered character and performance as a result. I, I guess that would have been a Kathy Moriarty yeah. uh, role yeah. in Raging Bull. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. <laughs> and then for the role of the Bowden's daughter, Danny. Um, the first actress that uh, Scorsese and De Niro met met with for the role was Juliette Lewis. Uh, other names mm-hmm. that I'd heard in consideration included uh, Drew Barrymore, who apparently really tanked the audition when she... <laughs> really? <laughs> God. Um, but uh, yeah, she was very much the first one that they met. And the first one, her first audition was just her and De Niro together. Just And they didn't even really specifically talk about the film itself they very much had a chat about what they were into and what their what her interests were and uh just i guess what you would kind of consider a chemistry test ultimately but then mm-hmm. uh, the search yeah. kept going for quite a few months after that uh with lewis herself saying as she was just kind of sat there going uh my agent was telling me that i was still their top choice and i was just kind of sat there perhaps a bit uh egotistically just thinking then why why aren't they offering it why aren't they offering it and uh, uh, when they eventually did offer it, um, Scorsese very much said to her, "Like we just couldn't believe that we had found the person for the role in the very first go. We thought we'd like, okay, we we, we have to search yeah. just for the sake of it, despite how perfect we thought you were. It was like we, it can't be the first one, right? But lo and behold, it was very much the first one. <laughs> uh, and also in the car- <laughs> in the casting that nods to the original 1962 classic with." Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum, and Martin Balsam all cast in small roles. Um, Peck himself is given the role of a uh, southern uh, prosecu- like uh, religious zealot prosecutor. Prosecutor Robert Mitchum's given the role of a police lieutenant, and Martin Balsam is uh, the judge this time out uh, after playing the detective in the original film. Nice little shake-up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scorsese very much wanted to have them involved in some capacity to kind of act as a kind of um, a token and, and, and as a kind of blessing on the on the film and also as just an expression mm-hmm. of their uh, their admir- admiration, very much saying that, like, these are the guys that we grew up with watching, so we've got to include them in some capacity. <laughs> uh, another manner in which the film kind of honors the original is in keeping uh bernard herman's original score uh herman of course one of his last works was for scorsese's own taxi driver so for scorsese to kind of want to uh honor um a previous collaborator's legacy is you kind of feel like and for the the score itself is so sharp and so distinctive and so iconic and very much matches the approach still that Scorsese brings to it um 
But in order to kind of rearrange the score, he brings in uh, Alma Bernstein, that himself a very, of course, a very accomplished composer, having worked on the likes of The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven, and uh, also a number of great comedy scores throughout the 80s with the likes of Animal House. Ghost- oh, and an interesting pivot in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Ghostbusters <laughs> and Train Places and all that. <laughs> I, I love I love the Ghost, but the first Ghostbusters score. I think yeah, it's, it's great. great. I think um, it's a lot of fun. His score for the Black Cauldron is also very good. Uh, <laughs> give that a shout out as well. Um, <laughs> yes. Andy Gurdjian always plugging away for the Black yeah. Cauldron. Yeah. <laughs> And the Bernstein himself, it was a chance to kind of pay homage to uh, someone he had also looked up to early in his career. Um, so he very much does keep the score largely in the kind of shape that it is from the original, but also brings in unused cues that Herman had written for Alfred Hitchcock's Torn, Torn Curtain, um, <laughs> a film which very much Herman and Hitchcock had had a very fruitful uh, career as collaborators but Tonka and proved to be the breaking point where um Hitchcock had wanted a more romantic score but Herman was like nope and <laughs> I had a whole orchestra for this big kind of bombastic thriller score <laughs> and apparently they got into like three hours of recording <laughs> on the first day and then it all got shut down so um uh Bernstein in his uh kind of tribute to Herman um brings in some of these unused themes from Torn Curtain Curtain as well to make make this film a a tribute to uh, the great Bernard Herrmann. And also on the kind of note of Hitchcock, uh, Scorsese brings in um, famed graphic designer and film title designer Saul Bass, who had worked with Hitchcock on a number of films, including Vertigo and Psycho, to design the film's opening titles. Psycho being... Yeah. Psycho being the most personal in this case. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, the original Cape Fear is very much made in that kind of wake of uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood wanting to capitalise on the sensationalism of uh, the success of Psycho. <laughs> 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 and and th- this would kind of also start a happy relationship between Scorsese and Bass as well, as Bass would go on to create titles for many of Scorsese's films into the 90s, including... Uh, his next film, The Age of Innocence and Casino. Um, after also having designed the um, the the title design for Goodfellas on a favour as well, so that, like, <laughs> how, very much builds into the the DNA of Cape Fear, both as a tribute to uh, those kind of movies that from which it's kind of birthed, and also um, mm-hmm. speaking to Scorsese's own um, film fan as a film. As a filmmaker and yeah. as a film fan as well, speaking to those kind of sensibilities. As a, as a slight aside, it's, it's something I didn't get the chance to bring up during our, our chat with Hannah, but do you think, because the wife in the original, I think, is called Polly, and in this she's renamed Lee, L-E-I-G-H, and she has a hairstyle not dissimilar to Janet Lee That's true. in Psycho. Do you think, is that a reference? I mean, do you think that is, is a reference to that, or is that just a nice sort of happy coincidence? I'm going to go with a happy coincidence unless proven otherwise. <laughs> it, it does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's a, yeah. <laughs> that, that it's a nice conspicuous coincidence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the film ended up shooting in uh, Fort Lauderdale in Florida um, with Freddie Francis as cinematographer, 
who um, had previously worked in the 80s with David Lynch on uh, The Elephant Man and Dune, um, and who had previously had a very prolific career throughout the 70s as uh, one of the main uh, directors at Hammer and uh, Amicus. So he was very much a big proponent of that sort of style of uh, very extreme Mm -hmm. horror um, filmmaking of that period. And you can very much see that's very much baked into the kind of, uh, as you were saying, that kind of almost Giallo approach to horror with the kind of stark mm-hmm. lighting, very uh, surreal lighting at times, and um, and the kind of nervous atmosphere that this film um, breeds, which is also very much enforced by um, Scorsese's regular co- collaborator, filmer, shoemaker, as a editor on a picture who clearly has a ball going <laughs> trying to yeah, trying oh, to shred your nerves yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean she, she and scorsese are a two-headed beast if ever there yeah, was one exactly uh much of the much of the horror comes from the cuts in this movie and much of the and also much of the mm. the, the the kind of dark humor in it as well i would say <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Like when he's trying to convince, uh, when Sam's trying to convince Lee that he didn't have an affair, be it physical or emotional, and then there's a smash cut to uh, him on the sofa yeah. going, oh god, I can't believe this. Or even at the point where they're just trying to sit down and have a family dinner and the phone goes off and it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Thelma. The best. So as you can see, this is very much born out of a kind of uh, post-psycho um, psychological thriller cinema of the early 60s, dragged through the Hammer films of the 70s and then re- recontextualized and uh, modernized for early 90s audiences and with Scorsese very much uh, echoing the kind of Hitchcock flavors, but also bringing in his own uh, kind of unique... Um, Edge to edge to the proceedings in what he also described as uh, his first attempt to be a commercial filmmaker, and it, this is very much the, those results. But um, it, it was very much a commercial hit for Scorsese. Um, after being released on November fifth, nineteen ninety one, it went on to earn a hundred over just over one hundred eighty two million dollars worldwide, off of a budget of thirty five mil, and uh, also earned pretty fair return. Yeah. Uh, also earned Oscar nominations for both De Niro and Juliette Lewis. Uh, and at the time was also uh, largely well received by critics, even though some, as we'll touch on in our discussion with Hannah, even some saw it as a kind of uh, a, a question mark over the direction of Scorsese's career, which uh, is something that just really hasn't borne borne much fruit. Not <laughs> 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 in the slightest. So yeah, that very much brings us up to speed on the context of Cape Fear. So uh, shall we bring in Hannah Flint and uh, crack on uh, with shall our we, discussion uh... of uh, said film? Yeah, <laughs> I reckon. I reckon we should we should sever the rope that ties the boat to the anchor on this conversation and let it stream downriver into our conversation with Hannah. <laughs> What the hell are you doing? You're about to go on the air. Watch it, Junior. 
Excuse me. Dad, are you going to buy me the money or not? No, I'm not going Listeners, please welcome to the podcast film and TV critic, broadcaster, interviewer extraordinaire, Hannah Flint. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Thank you so much for coming by. (laughs) Thank you. Introduce me all the time, please. I I appreciate it. I like it. (laughs) He's got a good voice for it, hasn't he? Yeah, no, you should do Thank like you. you should be like the X Factor, you know, it's like bring people on. It's Rachel, I'd have you. Hannah Flint. No, thanks for having me. No, yeah, well, listeners may know you from MTV Movies, Pages of Empire magazine, as well as your Fade to Black and First Film Club podcasts and events. So I think it's fair to say you're a pretty busy person, so we really do appreciate that you've taken the time to come and ramble about some Amblin movies with us today. <laughs> hey, look, it's very, I'll take to, I'll take time for uh, some ramblings about Amblin, uh, especially <laughs> Cape Fear. <laughs> <laughs> now, was film and TV journalism always the kind of end goal? Was like, did you grow up in a filmy household? Is that kind of how you ended up going down this path? Yeah, I, I suppose um, we we would go to cinema every week or go to Blockbusters. Um, my parents like had a very big VHS collection. Probably had a lot of Amblin stuff. Actually, we did have Cape Fear on VHS. I remember vividly because it's like his eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's a scary case. Uh, so yeah, but I think um, <laughs> I don't think when I first got into journalism, I, I didn't. I suppose I didn't really think film writing about film was a path. For me, may, I don't know, maybe it's because most of the time you, it's male critics or male writers get to do that. So you don't really yeah. see yourself in the job. But then I realized once I got into the industry and then um, kind of started in showbiz and then I realized, oh, I don't want to talk about uh, I don't want to talk about celebrities about their lives. I want to talk about their work. <laughs> so I think it was kind of like yeah. trying to navigate that because I've been doing it for like 10 years. And I would say only the last four, four years, maybe uh, that I've been able to really focus on film and tv and yeah I worked really hard and now here I am on the rambling podcast <laughs> it's all the effort this is it this is my journey it was all just to get here I manifested exactly. this. it's a big week for you big week for you I saw you you made your debut on the empire podcast this week and now it's the rambling podcast so you know it's a big <laughs> yeah I'm just taking over I'm just colonizing every podcast basically <laughs> Now, you, you touched on uh, Cape Fear being one of the VHSs in your household growing up. So what kind of were the sort of uh, formative films for you when you, as you were growing up? And how much of a part did like the movies of Amblin Entertainment play in that? Yeah, big part, because in a way, they're kind of, there's so many. And you realise like how, I mean, it's so interesting. Like I can look at it now and think like, oh, it was such a little kind of boys club. Not like in the bad, like, but it was, it was like. Lucas, Corsese, yeah. De Palma, mm-hmm. like all of them all hanging the out together. Yeah, and then even just the fact that this film was <laughs> like, still was like, oh, like, I don't want to do it. It's yeah. violent. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And like, then he's like, oh, yeah, exactly. Or like, when I learned about like that, that Brian De Palma was the one who gave George Lucas the idea for the opening scroll, like of 
uh, of Star Wars because it was like, this is great, but I have no idea why they're doing this. So, like, just like that little intro, like a bit of exposition, it's like it totally changes. It becomes like an iconic feature of it. So, yeah, so in my household, we're like, you know, we go see, I mean, Jurassic Park was like a massive one. I remember seeing that in the cinema. Um, I, I don't know, there's like so many. I mean, Land Before Time, I know you've covered it on this podcast, but like for me, that's like a 66 minute film of perfection. It's like, forget Bambi, yeah. like, this is the one. And I think, no, who is it? Is it Don Bluth? Like, he directed mm-hmm. that. And he also did, like, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Like, I mean, and in animation is a whole different kettle of fish. But, yeah, no, so we, and my parents are really into, like, you know, they love cinema. Their first date was going to see um, uh, uh, Field of Dreams. <laughs> And oh, they still wow. have the ticket oh. stops from us. Um, so like, That's you know, we're in, yeah, no, it's really lovely. And so, um, so I think, I, I, I think, you know, as someone who I would say, you know, we weren't um, a French new wave household. <laughs> we were very much like movie of the week, blockbuster popcorn movies. And so I do have an affection for like, th- that's probably why I like superhero films as well. I like those big story yeah. telling kind of exciting um, I don't know, just kind of the, the escapism you get from mm-hmm. it. And I think you really do get the escapism from a lot of these movies, even though Kate Fear, <laughs> I mean, maybe you want to escape from the situation. <laughs> You're kind of like, I'm glad that escapism. <laughs> yeah, like not, not for me. I'm glad I'll happily be a, a viewer of this life. But I suppose, yeah, it's kind of like you don't want to have. But, um, but yeah, so yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think you can be a millennial film critic or even early like a writer and not be massively influenced Mm -hmm. by what that production company produced yeah um so i you've sort of yeah well you've set that up quite nicely i have to say it sounds like you get quite emotionally invested in films and you like films that do play to sort of big emotions so i guess my question is do you cry at et uh i cry at a lot of films i haven't watched (laughs) et in a while but i do i am Mm -hmm. a crier what would i cry i'm trying me too hannah yeah, I cry Big so time. much, it's ridiculous. Like I watched Sing Two recently and I cried <laughs> when like like Bono's lion. Bono, like who's crying at Bono? But like he just looks down at his guitar and I just put, I was like bottom lip shaky. I was like, how do I get a grip? Um but I cry a lot. Um yeah, E. T. though, I think I don't know if I cry that much on that one. I don't know. This sounds really mm-hmm. bad, but like I was just saying to my friend earlier because I was telling him I was doing this podcast. Yeah. I was like I don't know if E.T. is my, like, main jam. Like, it's not one mm-hmm. that I'm like, oh. Um, but, yeah, I normally cry at, like, I mean, let me just say, Land Before Time. <laughs> not that, a tissue. That's the one, is available. <laughs> That's the one. That one breaks me every single time. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just beautiful. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's very good at that, isn't he? Like, the kind of movies that he produces. I mean, even, like, Firefall Goes West or, like, American Tale. Like, those, it's kind of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I kind of adore yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point because maybe our question, Andy, should should not be do you cry E.T., but E.T. or Land Before Time. Yeah, it should be. You should yeah. change it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. that, was... that is the one that sets me off. <laughs> yeah. And it's not an E.T. cryer, whereas I, that's the one that makes me like, ugly cry for a what, long, what long time. What specific scene? I mean, the bit where he's in, it's kind of, I suppose, maybe where he's getting... Um, where he's been captured and it's mm-hmm. like you think he's dead and you're like yeah, oh, yeah. that bit but- <laughs> and I suppose maybe if I see people crying sometimes that stokes tears mm-hmm. in myself 
Um, but yeah, maybe. See, now I need to go rewatch ET, and then I'll report. <laughs> Never that. a bad idea. Never a bad idea. But I, I should say, I, I'm, I'll let yourself. I'm a very easy crier. The other day, I was thinking about uh, the scene at the end of the film Coda, where she's singing both don't, sides now, don't. and she starts signing to her parents. And I, I, now I'm getting goosebumps, and I could very easily cry. So it, it takes it takes my memory of a scene that made me cry to almost set me off. So I, yeah. I very much, I feel the, uh, I feel that. We, we are a Joni Mitchell household, so I sent that to my dad. I was like, don't watch this. Wipe out, sit down. I mean, that scene, and then even the scene, oh, God, yeah. Joni Mitchell just, like, I love how that both sides now has become an mm-hmm. iconic scene. Like, both are, like, with Emma Thompson yeah. in, uh, like, that one. That's a proper crying one. And then you've got a more upbeat version of it. And also different versions mm-hmm. of both sides now, because the one that Emma Thompson's listening to is from a later album, and it's so... Sorry, I love that we're now on the Jonah Mitchell podcast. Um, but I just love how different her voice sounds when when she's from wh- who she is, like who she is as a she smoked loads. So like the album later yeah. one that's Emma Thompson, that's like her voice is quite low, a little bit crackly and broken. And then the both sides mm-hmm. are original one is obviously kind of like this full of hope in it. And like the second yeah. one's like oh no, I've been through it now. It's like so, <laughs> such a different meaning, isn't it? Oh, Joni, love her. I, I could carry on down this Joni Mitchell road very happily. This is this is this is great. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the one thing. Kate Fear, no Joni Mitchell, so Yeah. Yeah. Truly great. So, so <laughs> no stars, I guess. Zero yeah. stars from Rambling and Anthony. Minus. It's no maybe it starts on a minus. That's it. It's minus. Yeah. Everything starts on a minus if you don't have Joni. That's why I highly recommend um, the Last Black Man in San Francisco, because that's got a great Joni Mitchell cover. Oh, in it. Nice. Um, oh yeah. blue. So good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we should talk about Cape Fear, I suppose. <sighs> Go on then, then. <laughs> <laughs> now, having that VHS in your household when you were quite young, do, do you do you remember actually watching the film itself quite young as well? What was your kind of uh, introduction to Scorsese's Cape Fear? Yeah, it, it, I think I wasn't... No, I think I might have been that maybe... 10, 11 or 12, like youngish. But I watched mm. it with my parents probably mm. because they had like, my dad had all Scorsese's. I mean, Goodfellas is like another one that was, we had the VHS for Casino. Like we had so many of them. So it was always like, and also sometimes we would do, me and my brothers, we'd sneakily watch stuff when my parents weren't <laughs> in. So, you know, I can't, I can't actually remember if the first time I watched it with or without my dad. But I remember being like, just, yeah, being very scared about it. And also definitely at a time before I'd probably gone through puberty. So that was kind of like the situation with Danielle and Juliet Lewis. Mm. That was kind of like weird yeah. watching that, certainly. Um, but I think I've revisited it maybe, maybe a couple of times, but I haven't watched it since probably for like 10 years. Like I find sometimes with films that I'm always on this track where right now as well, because I feel like I'm trying to fill in a lot of gaps in my film now that you become like a kind of I don't know a a voice about film you realize how much you don't know (laughs) like I didn't go to film school and I you know I didn't I don't know so I feel like I have to fill in those gaps so rather than revisit stuff a lot of the time it's more me it's really only revisit stuff if it's for like kind of work but now it's kind of like oh just fill in the other bits but this has been it is interesting how many things that watching it today just even like the storyline about how 
you know, because obviously it's changed changed from the Executioners to the 62 film to this one, mm-hmm. uh, 91, in the sense of what his, what Sam Bowden is, is wh- why Max Cady is mad, at, like why he's got his vengeance, yeah. like yeah. why he's got his revenge. And it's interesting when, you know, you realise that actually Sam has suppressed information, even though his defender was suppressed information about the woman's, um, promiscuity and I know that scene is like yeah. kind of a bad th- maybe then it would have seemed like oh well you know he did he didn't do just right by his defense entity but I do feel like in today in like today's you know climate of stuff and the way women are so mm. often how often that's used and even the storyline with you know the girlfriend who well not girlfriend you know, I don't know if, I, I feel like it mistress? may definitely have an emotional affair yeah. <laughs> or something like that sort of tiptoeing t- um, yeah. around being <laughs> a mistress yeah it, yeah I think. Her, <laughs> her even saying I don't want to yeah. you know yeah. report him because I've seen how women are ripped to shreds like this because even like now I'm like wow this is a massive kind of film mm. that really yeah. like hits t- nerve on like how women are treated in the system so in a way like I know it's Sam is supposed to be I know somewhat his wrong in this version like he's not like the perfect person like he's not his kind of bad that he doesn't do his due like due diligence as a lawyer mm. I still think that's kind of admirable that he was willing because it shouldn't mm-hmm. women's promiscuity should never be a factor in whether they get raped or not 100%. so yeah so that's exactly. it's, I wonder if that's like now watching it now post me to compared to 91 that actually it has has a whole different meaning than it did back then and so actually he becomes a far more i know he's like still like kind of our hero but he's like he's less flawed in my head but also he is kind of a dick yeah yeah, (laughs) i think one of the the strongest things this film does compared to the 62 version is is make him less uh, like he's gregory as played by gregory peck in 62 he's a very pious straight you know straight and narrow guy he's quite simple good in this one he's much more ambivalent and like you say he does he's a lawyer and he's got the is it hippocratic oath or is that just when it comes to that's doctors isn't it is that just doctors but whatever that version is for the the sixth amendment sixth amendment that he's broken yeah by uh, not giving hit the guy a fair trial yeah Yeah. so he's he he has betrayed you know his oath what he what he's sworn to do for his profession but by the same time the film is very frank about the failings in the legal system when it comes to women and girls and how (sighs) it's not a a clear-cut simple good and and wrong he's done bad in the service of good and Mm. the system that's supposed to be in the service of good can ultimately reinforce um uh, uh prejudices and presuppositions that the jury might have so it's quite i really like that the film does push you to these gray areas where you aren't quite sure what there's no clear takeaway that you're given and i think that is actually something that scorsese really worked to give this story when spielberg handed it off to him yeah Um, i i definitely feel like scorsese knows how to handle kind of that the gray area mm -hmm. of life of it's the same with goodfellas like i mean they're all like, like they're all kind of bad characters, but you still have an affection for them. Pretty like, bad fellas, yeah. Yeah, they're Absolutely. bad. They're bad. And, hey, wait <laughs> they're a not second. Good at all. <laughs> this is false advertising. Where's Lionel Schultz? <laughs> Get him as my lawyer. Um, yes, I think I think he knows how to, and I think it makes them more like real because you know the Gregory Peck character. Yeah. 
mm. you know, when his version of it, I mean, that in like To Kill or Mockingbird, it's so interesting. I think I was talking to, um, I was talking to my boyfriend the other day because he, he, David Mamet was going to do, wanted to do a version of To Kill the Mockingbird, To Kill a Mockingbird, but the estate didn't agree because they wanted it. Oh, I don't know if it was David Mamet he wanted to do it. Anyway, someone wanted basically to do a version of To Kill a Mockingbird, but the estate didn't agree because it was going to be the, from the character, from the black you know, his, mm-hmm. his, his, uh, right. what, what was he, what was his client's, you know, perspective. And yeah. it would actually look at how his character, sure, he's this like white savior, but he also happily lives in the community where racism is exists and does nothing about it. So like, yeah. they're actually trying to show it. And they were like, no, we don't, <laughs> we don't want that version of it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like interesting that, you know, it's same in kind of the 62 one it's like he's almost too perfect and that's not and i don't think that's yeah. as interesting because it i think what's so good is that max Cady is a very like charismatic character as well where he's awful but the way de niro plays him like i get that there's this like sexual and it's it's weird i don't know sometimes i think it's good sometimes it like captures that kind of I, uh, I suppose female desire and what mm. is the bad, like why we're drawn to maybe bad men, um, which I think works. Some of the things I do think is a bit iffy. We'll get, I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> like, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that in a way, like they're, the fact that they're actually not as clear cut good and bad, mm-hmm. like you're kind of like, well, Matt Scaley yeah. does have a point. He doesn't give a legal argument, <laughs> but he's still raped a girl and beat this girl up and he's yeah. doing terrible things you're like can't go too much i have to say though matt skady like we watched it like every single outfit he wears every single shirt <laughs> is amazing <laughs> i'm waiting for like when Shirts are we gonna get like hats. the matt skady time type like times of Pierucci drop like i'm ready for like some instagram <laughs> account who does like fashion to like recreate all the looks so i can buy it it's like one where it's like a like he's like the short sleeve with like a red sunset beach Hawaiian yeah, yeah, shirt. Yeah, red sunset oh, shirt. It's just <laughs> like stunning. In that red Cadillac as well. It's yeah. like, all right, Max, all yeah. right. You're, you're, you're putting that money to good yeah, use. Yeah, he's putting his inheritance <laughs> in, some, in some respects. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, he looks so, like, he looks amazing throughout. So you can mm. see why people might be like, oh, yeah, it's kind of hot. Kind of <laughs> like it. But there you go. Because there is that weird kind of tension as well, because it's been, similarly, it's been about 10 years since I've watched this, because I remember watching it in um, Sixth Form, where we did, like, it was like a specific uh, segment in our film studies class, where we were doing, like, remakes and uh, originals and kind of comparing and contrasting. Um, the main focus was like War of the Worlds, but kind of like further reading, as it were, was like Cape Fear and Funny Games. Oh, and... oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was thinking of Funny Games earlier. That was a heavy week. Watching, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I do think it's mainly in those two characters and particularly the uh, the fa- the Bowden family as well that, that you can really see Scorsese drilling down into, like you were saying, those grey areas that you feel like Spielberg really wouldn't feel comfortable with and it makes sense that he kind of handed this off um but what what do you guys kind of think of the uh making the Bowden family this kind of fractured um network that's already kind of breaking at the seams uh before even Matt's Cady's turned up on the scene the 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 marriage is fraught there's uh their daughter is like on that cusp of adulthood and 
desperately wanting to be taken more seriously and is just being kind of shut out by her parents who are at war with each other and still just see her as this kind of uh, cute six-year-old or what have you. How do you kind of see um, particularly Scorsese's um, interest in the Bodens and how that's explored in this in this new in this new take particularly compared to 62 it, it put me in mind a little bit of uh, jack nicholson in the shining how he's already insane at the beginning and he just needs a little push over the edge that the overlook gives him to go into full-on family murdering psycho mode and the bodens in this film are already really the seams are strained at the very beginning and they only need this this psychopath to come along and sort of give him a little prod uh, yeah. To pull to pull those things mm-hmm. to pull those things loose, but yeah, it did it did put me in mind of uh, the this is to um, the sixty two version what the Shining film is to the Shining novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he really likes dysfunction in families, and yeah. it, and I think as a psychological thriller, it add it ups the ante for sure. Because again, I think it's just that it's a far more interesting film. Like I don't want. I think I think a lot of us. Especially that kind of like, I don't know, I feel like the 90s really bred like this whole kind of new type of psychological thriller that kind of mm. led the way for like, I don't know, like all Ashley Judd films and stuff, you know what I mean? And also this yes. came out the same year yeah, as, yeah. Um, as uh, what was it, Science of the Lambs? That was also out. So I felt like it's just a really mm-hmm. interesting time to really kind of like poke holes at the nuclear family, the idea of like these perfect little setups and kind of move away from that sort of, yeah, because I think, yeah, you didn't really get, I feel like there's a certain presentation of family life maybe in like the early 60s and it took like a lot of like, what, the new guard to come through and like mm-hmm. fuck shit up. So we love those. <laughs> yeah, of I course. Should, we yeah, should yeah, do. Yeah. Talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, Scorsese. Um, yeah, I think he, um, yeah. And, I, and also I think, I mean, Jessica Lange in it for a second. I really was like, watch. I was like, oh, I kind of want a haircut. Should I do it? And I realized that my mum had that hairdo as well. I'm like, I don't want to look any more like my mum. Um, but I kind of like, I, I like this kind of somewhat disdain that they have for each other. It's yeah. like, why are you still with yeah. this man? Like, move on. Also, she's like this. I love the introduction that she's like this. Um, She does like logo designs. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Like, and I was like, that amounts to nothing. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> you, it's like one of those things like, I always think like, whenever you introduce something about a character, I'm always like, okay, when's that coming back? And it just what's never did. What's the payoff going to be for what's this? What's the payoff? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's this Chekhov's logo? I, I heard a little bit <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I heard a little bit that uh, Wesley Strip, the writer, had originally written a part where um, it was supposed supposed to kind of be another signpost as to what um, saying that Katie had been going kind of freely in and out the house as he chooses without them knowing. They were going to have it that she was struggling on this one logo, and then one morning she comes down and there's the new perfect logo <laughs> ready on her desk. <laughs> that would have been sick. <laughs> I would have loved that. that Katie was really great at graphic design. <laughs> I just imagine the scene on the boat at the end in the whirlpool with, with Katie saying, I'm going to blow everyone's head off unless one of you can design me a perfect airline logo. <laughs> what if the logos at the end were just like his bloody hands? yeah um but yeah i think the family um yeah i love the kind of the weirdness of that family also kind of a weird relationship with yeah. the dad and like nick Nolte and juliet lewis i mean juliet lewis is just she's so good at yeah. this sort of role like I, I, this kind of like she's got this sweet she's got such a sweet face 
And mm. it's just waiting yeah. for like this darkness to come out. And she's so, and I mean, she got, didn't she like nominated for an Oscar for this? And it was like so well deserved. She was, yeah. Because, because she just captures all that kind of sweet and innocent, but like this bubbling, bro- like bubbling up of desire and kind of confusion as well. I think that's what it is. It's like, it's mm-hmm. a very, it's a very confusing, it kind of captures all those like, weird feelings that you have and like um I don't know the instability of that especially as formative on your formative years and trying to branch out and like the, yeah. it, I mean it's just a very unsafe it's, it's a very unstable chaotic movie yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah and that and that... I think that's like oh sorry you go no Josh. you go on Andrew all right <laughs> um I was like just gonna say that kind of like chaos is really like to particularly to kind of compare it again to like the 62 version the moment where um it's revealed that the family dog has been killed which is always a bit of a no-go in my book i don't don't, i'm never a big fan of when the film kills a dog but there we go i'll accept it in cape fear i can excuse rape i draw the line at dogs being killed But the the scene in the 62 version where it's like Gregory Peck being the kind of like clean cut family, family man kind of taking charge in the moment and the the wife and the child being quite um, scared and un- unknowing what's happening in the moment. And then in this scene, it's uh, kind of transpired to Jessica Lang's, uh Lee is the one who's very distraught. And then it's he's... In- automatically quite dismissive of her emotions and she lashes out at him quite rightly for being so dismissive of how she's feeling and then Danny's just instantly kind of like going out the room um, upset that they're fighting again she's already kind of had enough of both her mum and dad and it's that kind of um, mm-hmm. their, their kind of dismissiveness, yeah, dismissiveness of her already is kind of uh, it puts her in more danger, I would say, yeah. particularly because she's at this such a fragile point, and the f- reason why Matt's Katie ends up being so kind of interesting to her is because he's the first person that she is really kind of taking her mm. s- seriously and actually giving her the tools to be it through, like, yes, through deception and exploitation, but he's like meeting her on a level that she wants to be accepted that and the, yeah. the, the thing that just kept getting at me was that they just that she would be so much safer in this whole thing if they just told her what he yeah. had done and yeah. what, what, <laughs> what, absolutely yeah. 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 all of this swirling um uh maelstrom, maelstrom kind of comes to a head in that great scene in the theater when when uh, max is sitting in that really creepy like hansel and gretel stage set and yeah. uh, he, yeah. he calls her to there and that scene Big feels like it goes on for hours it's a long like almost unbearably drawn out mm. scene and she plays all these emotions there because as far as she's concerned like you say she doesn't know the extent of what he's done he's just someone that her parents have said is a big big no-go so he's kind of the outlet for her sense of rebellion and you can see her playing all these different things this guy's meeting her on her level like you say for the first time she's he's kind of charming and a little bit sexy like you say hannah as well and, and there's all these confusing things pulling at her so when he says to her can i put my arm around you we as an audience like oh shit this is the worst possible thing imaginable well not quite yeah. near the worst possible thing imaginable and she is like flattered and she kind of blushes and 
there's an inscrutable look on her face and you think is it fear is it kind of is it longing and and, and she she plays all these emotions and even when he starts putting his finger in her mouth and starts like really french kissing her oh. it, it's it's hard there's a, a weird line between discomfort and real longing and gratitude for being met at this level and when yeah. he does kind of turn and walk away I, I i couldn't quite make her response it looks kind of like kind of like regret to a point and a bit of fear and then she runs away and and it's like she's had this release and feels a bit ashamed by it i don't know there's just there's so much going on in that mm. scene and i think it really is a masterpiece of of her performance she's 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 so so good in this yeah movie. i think it's probably shame and also like the inexperiencedness of it kind mm. of her feeling like yeah. oh did i do that right yeah um, yeah it's also weirdly i was like oh asking for consent what a gentleman yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh wait yeah. it's like this is how they get you uh they switch they switch <laughs> you but um but yeah exactly i think also just giving i mean as you said andy like <laughs> how many times you're just like when, when he's there's a scene where not Nolte and Lewis are in bed. He's like, "Why are you smiling?" Dad grabs her face. Yes. That seems really yeah, scary. I wonder if the reaction of that. I wonder really if she scary. knew that was going to happen because she mm. seemed like. I mean, mm. I don't want to like kind of say that she, that emotion is not kind of acting, but also it looked like really stressful, like distressing thing to her experience. Mm. But it's like, really "Why are you smiling?" Like, it's like, dude, just tell him. And I think it's kind of this class. This bit, you know, points to a bigger theme about this film about we like to kind of bubble wrap young women mm. and actually yeah. by doing that what you do and not and not be realistic about the world and the way men move in the world and how you can be a victim to it um you know it kind of saying like oh well if you if you're not going to accept, accept that these bad things happen then worse things could potentially happen in the future it's like when someone yeah. used to talk about racism like it was like oh i don't want my kid learning about racism it's like oh that's a luxury for white people but like tell people mm. about racism that's yeah. like it doesn't people get terrible things to happen to kids and young women and young people but i think it really kind of captures that it's like you kind of set yourself up here for even worse and she, would she have met up mm -hmm. with him had you know a lot of the things like kind of yeah. like the reasons that of these things only happen because you're not doing your job properly as a parent you're trying to kind of yeah helicopter yeah. parent sugarcoat things and that's not the reality of life but i do like how much agency in a way that these two female characters have um, you know, I think it's good that they had scenes with Max Cady as well. So it stops becoming just like them yeah, to being agreed. like supporting characters in a, you know, man versus man story. Yeah. Um, I think it was good. And even, at, was... you know, towards the end bit, I love the fact that like, <laughs> when she gets like the light of fluid, it's like, yes, yes, Danielle. <laughs> yes. It's like, <laughs> you take me serious now, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> And that fast tracks it into I, a I whole think... different kind of film, which we'll, we'll get to at some point, I'm sure, because mm. I do want to talk about the final, like, 15, <laughs> yeah. 20 minutes. But, yeah. <laughs> what are you going yeah, to say, To kind of keep speaking to that point of, uh, like, particularly the tension that you have in that moment in the, the kind of Big Bad Wolf scene mm. at the drama school. Um, and I think it speaks to a particular way of how Scorsese largely uses violence overall in his home, whole filmography, because there is that tension of she's been kept in the dark but we as the audience are very aware of what max Cady is capable of because not like 20 30 minutes ago we've seen him brutally attack Ooh. um Nolte's, uh um co-worker and to ha that is what is really driving the kind of 
really jagged nervous energy un- underneath that scene because we know of what this man's capable of and it, like to kind of speak largely to how Scorsese uses violence I would never say he's particularly gratuitous it's always very shocking mm. and uh, upsetting blunt and uh, yeah and distressing because that you, you know that like that is that again it kind of speaks to the idea of like that is a reality of the world there is violence in the world there are people who are like this and who are capable of kind of shocking acts like this and it should be treated as as such and i i, I it's always something that i feel like particularly early in his career he got a lot of criticism for with the particularly the way he uses violence but it's not something that i've ever really kind of agreed with as such <laughs> yeah i think uh, personally i think violence should look upsetting because mm. it is upsetting yeah. like I think one of my, I suppose, a pet peeve about, I suppose, this PG-13 area of superhero yeah. movies is that they never really show how bloody these situations yeah. are. Like, there's never any lingering... I mean, it's all about the ratings and stuff. Like, Yeah. Um, and I feel like we do... Especially when it's stuff when you've got guns around. I mean, like... Yeah. Guns yeah. leave a mess, as we see uh, on <laughs> poor P.I.'s body. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. but... When they're flipping around in the floor, oh, enough blood, yeah. like, ah! It's like that is such a ridiculous scene, and then then Jessica Lange's in here, it's like ah, and he goes out and starts shooting around. It's like yes, bend it to the ground. I love that the whacks are just like how wacky it is. But yeah, I think it's important. It's pretty wacky. Yeah, I think it's important to be like because these are these are you know how do you how do you warn people against that sort of world and the seriousness of it? Um, I will say one thing. I I I was alluding to earlier about. I mean, the sexual violence. I mean, we do get it quite explicitly when mm. when his, uh, the clerk, co-worker, funny enough, that was, the actress, wasn't she going out with Martin Scorsese at the time? I think they were married briefly. I don't know. They were, I think they were going out. Damn, is that right? If Wikipedia, a <laughs> quick search on Wikipedia. Because I, I love I that actress and she always pops up in different things. Yeah, yeah. She was in, was she in mm. King of Comedy as well? I can't, I think she was a, she might have been that. So well. Elena anyway, Douglas, right, um, isn't it? yes that's who she is yeah i I was trying to find her for a second there yeah but i think they kind of showed it like how quickly i mean she yeah you're absolutely right she was sorry yes yeah yeah. um i I mean there you go work with scorsese go out with scorsese yeah yeah um i quite i think you know in that one she you know that situation with max katie she is she gives him consent obviously not consent to beat her the fuck up like didn't give consent but but when you yeah. when they did the later scene with Lee on the boat where she's he's basically raping her like he's sexually assaulting her, I felt that that was played um, to it kind of because she obviously there's a kind of the way that they see his first the way she first sees Max Cady in the in the backyard looking through there's kind of like a I don't know she's got this kind of it's like she's the sexual desire kind of mm. edge to the scene like oh in mm. a way is she aroused by this person like the it's idea the fireworks of being watched. behind him yeah, well. yeah yeah it's kind of like boy yeah. like like being watched the idea of some mystery person especially when she's kind of in the dark of it so when it later in that scene late, later on where he's basically sort of and then sam's i mean it's great when it's like lying down he's like staring at her but it mm. seems to be more about his discomfort than hers because i feel like she would have mm. been i mean sure she reaches for the gun but in that scene it seems like she's caught it's I don't know, the way she's directed in that scene or ways to choices that she makes makes me feel like, is she enjoying this? Like, is she, 
I got that impression a little bit, and I kind of wanted it to to feel mm. less like they were making love. But like mm. you know when like you know when it's like those scenes where it's like oh she said no but she means yes, and it's like the classic yeah. Yeah. I'll kiss her anyway. Um... She's she'll get into it. She's only pretending that she doesn't want it. For me, that's how that scene played out a bit too much, and I kind of I know she, she kind of I I I I think that could have been yeah a bit more explicit that that was assault or maybe that's what he wanted. He still wanted to have I that wonder. confusion there, yeah. and I don't agree with that because I feel like yeah you know this guy she this guy's murdered someone and it seemed like she was getting turned on about by mm. it. I don't know maybe that's the melodramatic performance of Jessica Lang, but I think she's yeah. a better she's a better actress than. than I don't know. I don't know. It'd be interesting to speak to. When are we getting Jessica mm. Lang? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, pretty... well I call her. <laughs> was she not involved? She in, won't in, respond another... to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> another famous example of that kind of scene, the no means yes scene. Is that not the case of um, Postman Always Rings Twice, which she is also in the scene of? I haven't seen it, but I, I'm sure that's a scene that's always brought up as an example mm. of... No, it's not one I've seen of, either. ...of the blurred lines. And it's her, I think it's her and... Uh, is it Jack Nicholson? Nicholson, right? Yeah. 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 But it, it, it's it's interesting that she is in two such examples of that kind of scene. Yeah. I think but I think one of the ones that... I, I remember writing a piece about sexual violence and how it's presented. I remember mm. there was one like Straw Dogs. Yes. Not the newer version with Kate Bosworth, mm. the original one. And that one was heavily criticised because it looked like she was enjoying her rape. And that's what I'm issue. I think, again, if we're showing violent crimes, we should also we should ensure. We, I think Scorsese should have made it seem as distressing for Lee yeah. as it would be someone getting killed, like the yeah. getting beaten up. And so I think there might have been a little bit of a blind spot there, because yeah, because I, I, again, it's like I cannot can't imagine yeah. like how like I'd be crying eyes out like Why? if that happened yeah. to me, like. Yeah. No. Weirdly enough, having watched the original a few days before with my girlfriend, and then she she was sort of holding my hand super tight for the entire final half hour because it is really intense. Mm. But the, the, the scene, the mm. same scene in the original when Max Cady is um, about to attack Sam's wife, uh, I think she's called Polly in the original. It, that to me felt so much more intense and visceral because she, she is reacting kind of like, exactly like you say. She's screaming like this this guttural kind of scream that's really blood curling. And my hand hurt afterwards because my girlfriend was squeezing it so tight because it was you really feel the fear and you mm. think I, I I know it's sort of the late era of the Hayes Code in place here, but I don't know how far this 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 movie is going to go in in what happens. Thankfully, you have the respite and you have the scene cut before anything happens mm. but that to me felt much more upsetting and scary and intense than this ostensibly much more um gratuitous scene yeah Do you and know what i mean how 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 upset mm. she got like what, the girl clearly is an emotional person how upset mm. she got when she like discovered that her husband's like knew the, the woman getting attacked and like always oh, back to his cheating ways like she's yeah. clearly get so it's, it was weird that she just didn't seem I don't know, it just, I mean, I suppose there's other things you could say, maybe because she kind of, like, knew something bad was going to happen, so she kind of just, like, got into not, I suppose, not a catatonic state, but, like, kind of, like, just kind of gave up. But at the same time, she yeah. didn't, because she goes, she reached for the gun. So, like, yeah. yeah. Mm. Awkward. Yeah, stealing herself for yeah. what she thinks is inevitable, but also she spies an opportunity to get out. I'm not sure, but, yeah, certainly for me, it, it didn't have the same... The man Literally. would have some, t- like, his bottom lip ripped off if it was mm-hmm. my, if me. So, and I feel like yeah. that would, it's like, would fit in with a Scorsese film, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> 
whilst we're kind of on the topic of the house bait, I think that in general, that kind of whole drawn out final act at once we're actually on Cape Fear, as it were. Um, how do you see that kind of sequence play out? Because for me, there's this weird tension between kind of like genuine like threat and like we like we're just discussing there. But then there's this kind of weird absurdity kind of played on top of it as there's the kind of escalation of uh, um, Katie's uh, uh, tolerance for pain and the kind yeah. of like yeah. how he's it, it really drives him as this kind of um, uh, how he how he views himself as kind of like a super superhero almost as someone who can take this pain and kind of be on this kind of like he kind of sees himself on this like righteous path and it it builds from like him like even before they get on the houseboat and it's a scene I'll never oh, yeah. be able to take seriously again <laughs> because of the Simpsons is when like there's the shot that shows that he's tied underneath the car yeah. <laughs> let's take a shortcut through the cactus patch all in favour <laughs> no no <laughs> two against one <laughs> but even then because like I was reading about how much they kind of tried to uh, like De Niro wouldn't do it unless he could be shown that it could actually be done so there's like you kind of slightly accept that part a bit more but then it builds up so much where it kind of he initially like is there very threatening but then he gets burnt and comes back as kind of like a freddy krueger mm. bo- boogeyman and it's a uh, there's this weird tension to me but and particularly when he's then kind of doing the faux trial and speaking directly to oh camera. my god and you, you uh, even that, have those whip pan sound effects play. as well you have mm. the yeah <laughs> you know. yeah I quite enjoy. I quite enjoyed that because it seemed like, I suppose, throughout the film, they're constantly trying to. Well, I think in a way there's a kind of mirror, a mirror devolution going on, like mm. in the sense of, like he's, you know, Sam is gradually becoming like his kind of, uh, I don't know, his senses and his kind of sensibilities are suddenly getting pulled to pulled apart. He's like becoming a broken man, and I think he's you know he's trying to keep up appearances and like no one's listening to him even though this guy has got this clear threat and then you have Max Cady who you know that it's going to end towards something you know that there's purpose like he's doing this it's a psychological warfare it's single-minded yeah yeah but also like I think someone who has gone from you know he's he's built built up all this anger and frustration and he hasn't really let it out but then after getting that pummeling um, as well, it's like, oh, it's just mm. sent him. And then suddenly right, here we go. Then trying, to, trying to outsmart him. I just think it triggers him to a point where this was all ready to come out and we were waiting for this moment to happen. And I love the fact that it, that it just like properly leaned into the batshit craziness of the mm. whole situation. Mm. I mean, I'm kind of like, when I was watching it, I was like, they should do like the Cape Fear ride. Like, get rid of George. <laughs> yeah. Like, do the Cape Fear ride. There's a history of Amblin rides. Yeah, I'd yeah. give that ride. I mean, don't assault me, but like, let's do no. that where it's like, you know, it's like a horror. It's like a mix, like horror. Like, yeah, I feel like, look, it's it's a working working process. So I love it. I'm still working out the kinks of that. The concept's not fully yeah, ironed yeah. out. Yeah. We're, we're still <laughs> but it's something, phase. though. It's certainly yeah. something. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think in a way, like, you know, it's like Michael has gradually become this kind of uh, figure who cannot die. It's like yeah. he is just a he is yeah. just pure evil. And I think I like this idea. I mean, I don't think Max is that point, but like I think the idea that he could 
I mean, it's so funny to think, isn't it? Because like the way it ends, you don't see a body. And if anything's taught me anything about no. film, is like if you don't yes. see a body, they ain't dead. <laughs> yeah. And it's mad. And I'm so he's you know, washing his hands. Yeah, I'm so glad there are people <laughs> they haven't yeah. like had that and done this into a franchise. It's totally... The return of King. No, but it could be, couldn't it? Um, but I like yeah. the fact that you know when he gets the flare and it's like he's just holding it. Yeah. And it's just like, oh god, this guy means. And then suddenly it becomes this is the. This is why he's scary. Like everything you thought, this whole kind of facade he's put on of the charisma, it's suddenly like gone. It's like that was, yeah. and that's when you realize that is what the true horror of this film is. Yeah. The idea that yeah. within anyone, there can be this like unsettling kind of yeah. evil ready to come out. He, he, he is this kind of elemental evil. Like even the, the very first time that Sam sees him coming out of the cinema, uh, he's sitting in his red car across the street. After watching Problem after Child. After watching Problem Child, <laughs> yeah, and, and loving it as well. And then this, this, this truck goes past, and by the time the truck goes past, Sam, uh, sorry, uh, Max and his red car has gone, and there's something very kind of, or almost campy horror about that. But it also does imply this supernatural quality to him. He can, in a blink of an eye, like Michael Myers, he can vanish if you sort of double take. By the time you look back, he's gone. Mm. And then you have this shot you mentioned when he's sitting on the garden wall looking in the window at Jessica Lang, And you've got these, I think, is it the 4th of July fireworks there yeah. behind him? Yeah, it's 4th of July. And that in yeah. itself is quite interesting because it kind of, it, it maybe this is a reach, but it, it almost ties him and this image of him, they provide a backdrop to him, almost ties him to the foundation of America. And there's kind of an implication mm. that he is this elemental evil that is lurking beneath America as a whole, what what America is, what America does. Um, and then you have that great shot when uh, when Sam has his police buddies, when Mitchum, uh, in fact, in his cameo role, calls in Max to the police station to be stripped and to be searched. And you have Sam sitting behind the two-way mirror looking at him. And Mitchum kind of says, don't worry, it's a one-way mirror, sorry. You can't see us. And there's a great shot that goes from... Uh, Max's side and kind of it tracks along and flips itself around and then you see through the mirror yeah. on the one side uh, Max getting strip searched and on the other side the reflection of Sam mm. uh, sort of positioned in the frame next to him and you do kind of have the implication almost like you're saying Hannah that, that they are almost mirrors of each other they're connected in some way yeah and I don't know I think also like this there's I thought it was interesting how often they're kind of ready to call Max like this white trash, yeah, redneck. And yeah. uh, in yeah. a way, it's also this like cautionary tale. It's like, you know what? Don't be snobs. <laughs> As Don't 2016 proved, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, <laughs> there is, you know, if you're, if you, they all think like, even Sam, he thinks he's better than, than Max. And sure, to a certain point, he is. Um, I mean, he's not committed violent acts, but he's also not a perfect person. This idea, and the fact is, this guy has been able to manipulate you and caught you in a position where now you've got a restraining order out that you're literally, you know, you're saying. I think in a way, like I sort of read something that's like said that Sam's like a beta male, and it's like, yeah, that's what he is, and like Max is the alpha, and I think that kind of like do you know as much as you might have class and stuff, there's also something about who is willing to get their hands at the actual dirty. Um, yeah. not condoning, of course, not condoning Max actions, but I think that's another way where Scorsese kind of like makes you like, makes him not endearing, but kind of 
well, you know, you're the one who tried to beat him up and didn't mm-hmm. work, and you're the one that actually yeah. tried to beat him up. You paid other people to do it, so it kind of makes him a little bit more coward, like the middle class, like cowardice of it. I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're, you think you're I safe agree. in your your like bloody massive mansion and all that by the walls, but man's been able to get in and like kill your dog and been watching you, and it's just, you know, I think that also plays on yeah. that kind of that, that kind of middle class uh, insecurity. You know, especially like you saw in horror movies as well, where it's like, you think you're safe behind your white picket fence. Think <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <laughs> so in a way, so I mentioned it's I say it's more psychological thriller than horror. I definitely think it kind of it's obviously um nods nods to kind of previous stuff where it came like Jim uh, John Carpenter and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I also think there's that weird tension between like the casting of De Niro and Nolte as it is, because Nolte is like He's usually uh, like you think like to forty eight hours or something earlier in his career. He's a big guy, uh, very tall, very imposing, and then and then De Niro has like you know a, a rich history of transforming his body for to fit the certain roles and how that kind of works here with Nolte went on a regiment of like kind of really kind of shredding down, so he wasn't quite so imposing, and De Niro bulking up and really focusing on like getting his physique in a way where he would seem much more imposing and much more the kind of as he was saying the the alpha to Nick Nolte and I even think like the way Scorsese's playing with that idea of like Katie's the alpha you kind of see it in that initially in that kind of tension in the uh, parade scene on the July 4th where he's kind of coaxing him to attack him and use violence in in the middle of the crowd and uses that against him to again elicit sympathy for himself and that even builds into the ending where um he's robbed of the kind of i guess like kind of archetypal way that you think this is going to end with uh him defeating him and and uh maybe even ultimately killing him you have this quite like uh brutish uh way that scorsese shoots uh, Nolte from very down below and he's got the like very guttural mm. sounds in his bloody face and he's holding up this giant rock and you think he's gonna like really be pushed to that extreme but then it kind of then robs him of that even that kind of moment he to gets the rock in the face I mean it also goes to the fact that like they would not have got out of that situation had Danielle not been resourceful mm-hmm. when she was in the yeah. little kind of hutch thing she comes out and does it I also find it hilarious like not hilarious but I don't know I don't why has he still got hair <laughs> His whole face is yeah. burnt off. It's like weird. It's like, God, what's he wash his hair in? Like, he still had like a full, and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have had any hair left anyway. Yeah, but yeah, was, and it also robs him of it because he dies by drowning. And it wasn't, mm. yeah, yeah, it wasn't intense. So it's like, even then, it's like, he kind of chooses stare. and he doesn't even resist. I think that's what's scary about it. It's like, yeah. he yeah. just welcomes it. He welcomes death. Like, and he's doing the tongues and stuff Speaking like that. In it's tongues, like, yeah. I'm still not giving you, I'm choosing to go out like this way. Yeah. Yeah. And that in itself is quite an interesting change from the 62 version in which Gregory Peck shoots Mischievous character in the leg and then says, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to take you to the prison again and you'll spend the rest of your life running in a jail cell. And that's an active choice that he makes being this, again, pious, morally certain character. Whereas in this one, like you say, I hadn't even thought of it in those terms, Hannah, but it's a really good point. He makes an active choice to kill this guy, which in itself is a deviation. But then he's denied that by this 
this sort of sniveling little figure of yeah, eternal yeah. evil. Yeah, that's a really but, good take. I like that. But that's, I mean, that's why it's so good when Peck ends up being his, like Hades' lawyer. I love that. Like, they switch yeah. in characters, like, Richard's the police officer, he's like the lawyer. But even that, I don't even think Peck, like Gregory Peck, he's like, I mean, I don't think it's a reversal, but I think it's kind of like, he's still the pious kind of guy. He's like, (laughs) I'm going to do, you know, he's already enlisted my services. I can't speak to him. He's already called me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think, but I think that's what uh, what I like about it. It feels like a very 90s movie because, again, I just don't think the reality, I think, you know, we have these saviour complex and we want to have our heroes be perfect. And actually, most of the time, that's not accurate. Like this kind of hero complex, messiah complex that is just kind of all over the place now. You know, it's get, it, it, it felt real and more far more interesting and far more kind of tense a movie because... Because actually, I think in us, we all have the ability, maybe pushed to the point, we all have the ability to kill, um, do, well, attempt to kill, <laughs> maybe that. So I think that's it also kind of re- on these very real human, you know, anger and rage and this kind of, mm. I don't know, pride as well, I think in this movie, it's a yeah. lot about pride. Um, and, and I think Scorsese is very good at kind of bringing that out like really like making sure it comes out kind of in a pure form that doesn't feel like diluted or sanitized. Mm-hmm. And particularly the way that he even uses the home earlier in the film. Like I really love that kind of drawn out sequence before we get to the houseboat that like, ultimately ends up in um, the private eyes and the, the maids murders, but the kind of drawn out, mur- uh, the drawn out sequence where he's setting up this trap, the, the home he's making um, traps. security detection. My, so my, he's making traps. My favorite <laughs> movie favorite? trope: traps. <laughs> and je- and again, how him uh, Scor- the way Scorsese is using so many kind of like tight shots of locks and mechanisms and little details around the home that are designed to make you feel safe and to keep you safe, and they're all kind of ultimately undermined. And, I like when like, he slaps like, that little... it all like snapping the shutters, like. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> like <laughs> save you, dude. <laughs> but I do like the kind of like the repeat imagery of that. Like, let's like, yeah, we've got to be go get better. Can't see me, we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, I think really love one of the things I really noticed. Like, I love the kind of like fast zooms, or is it like I think some yeah. of them are like zooms, but some of them can be just dolly shots. But like, I love how yeah. quickly it's like. I was wondering that as well. Close up. <laughs> yeah, I was like, look, I was like, how do we do? I should have closed <laughs> But like, I love that. It felt like very. um I don't know, very heightened and yeah. in a way kind of, it's that melodrama, doesn't it? Adds to the kind of like, oh my yeah. God, like, very Absolutely. 90s it's, it's of it. It's a visual also. version of da-da-da. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and then add into like the new version of the score, which really is like, and it mm. feels really, really like heavy and like oppressive, yeah. I would say. Um Yeah, you kind of, everything feels like this heightened world. I mean, even like, how mm-hmm. like sweaty Nick Nolte gets. He gets super sweaty. <laughs> yeah. like, <laughs> He's having his little nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think they I, I really enjoyed like the framing of certain scenes and like mm. yeah, just kind of Yeah. And I and and yeah, it's so interesting because I mean, yeah, Spielberg couldn't have done this movie that way. Because I think yes, still, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. It's weird though, isn't it? Because like <laughs> It's so funny that he kind of went on to do Schindler's List and it's like, you're dealing with Nazis. Those moments, they were, they were pretty violent. Yeah. But I suppose it's like sensibilities yeah. of it. I mean, he's not, he's he's kind of used to kind of bad things coming, but normally it's like, they're not really human. 
yeah, or yeah, yeah. But I can handle violence when it's like a shot. <laughs> yeah, but like humans, that's too. Maybe it's a bit too real for him. And yeah. it would, it, and it may would, and it would have kind of probably pulled him out of his wheelhouse. To be honest, like I think that's not what Spielberg really known for. I mean, I'm trying to think what's yeah. the most violent film that Spielberg's well, done. I think. I, I mean, maybe Munich, probably. Same Private Ryan. I might yeah, but that's that, like um... acceptable violence, isn't it? It's like yeah. in, the, in the concept. Yeah. See, there's a difference between like violence within not acceptable, but I suppose violence within war because it, it's so out of yeah. our, our, it's not our world. It's not our reality right now. Yeah. Unless you're obviously a soldier. Mm-hmm. But like there's something kind of you, separate about it that you kind of like, that's just the reality of war rather than something where it's like someone in your house. <laughs> I think um, the the closest he comes to this kind of psychological horror is something like War of the Worlds, which we'll get to at some point in uh, five years' time now in us. But that sequence, (laughs) um, the one that always sticks in my head is when they're they're in the car trying to get to the ferry and there's just masses of people either side and they break the windshields and like drag them out and steal the car. Yeah, and, and that is like genuinely, yeah. truly, and, and and it's not, it's a, a 12 or a you know, PG-13, so it's not particularly bloody, but I think it manages to avoid being anemic by really getting you in that horror, that, I mean, again, we'll speak about this in greater detail, but that really sticks in my head, the, the visceral fear of that sequence. Yeah. So yeah. You, you can do it, but I don't, I think you're again, right. Again, this speaks more to that, the later yeah. Spielberg. I, I don't think. think he was in the right because I mean, he's, the dude's going to make Hook in in a few months' time at yeah. this point. So I, he's not ready to make Cape Fear. I do not think so. No, no. But I think you're right. Maybe he's kind of going, kind of. I suppose he wasn't ready at that point. Mm. That was in his violent era, and yeah. it is like hysteria yeah. is probably one of the scariest things in yeah. the world because you know. I mean, sometimes that just the idea that just panic can, can induce people again to put their morals and ethics aside because it's yeah. like survival yeah. of the fittest dog eat dog get a fuck out of the car i want to get in <laughs> but yeah and i think in a way that's like i think in a way maybe that this in a way that the kind of devolution of nick naughty's character sam it's like he becomes i mean i always found it really interesting i think like look in those final boat scenes just how much of a monster he looked like himself kind of dragging himself around yeah. it's kind of a very weird like he I don't know. He kind of reminded me of like, like a hunchback. It kind of, yeah. it was just like, it was very ugly. And it's like, he had to, it, he, he'd been broken so much by the, the facade of humanity had been lost. Mm. And so yeah. then even then when it's on blood, then it's not really his blood, but it's like the reality of what he's just had to go through. It's like yeah. deeply traumatizing. Yeah. Um, I think that's like a really Naughty's well. very good at yeah. that switch yeah. as well. He's so good at that switch because he's got he's got a kind of a perfect face for it as well. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very clearly interested in this kind of um, the kind of affront that people will put up themselves, and particularly for a character like Sam, he's got his uh, his job is as a lawyer, where you constantly have to have a mask up, regardless of the kind of uh, well whatever kind of t- case you're taking on and particularly in the case of this it this is kind of uh paying for like the sins of kind of slipping up in his role as a lawyer for letting that mask slip one time and letting his own judgment take over um what is like we were saying his, the oath that he's chosen to keep and that and this is kind of paying for those like, like yes it's something that we all would ag- agree with and we can understand why he did it and again that kind of plays into this idea of like a kind of horror element of it and it made me 
think of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street a bit. And I know our friend Dan Kelly, who's also been on this podcast before, he's kind of likened it in a similar way, where it is that kind of idea of um, particularly generations kind of and transplanting it to the daughter having to also take Mm -hmm. the brunt of of uh, what could be perceived as exactly. And I, I don't think it's much, it, it doesn't surprise me that uh, Wesley Strick, the guy who wrote this, went on to write the remake <laughs> of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. There's a lot of Kruger and Katie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. There is, um, just to sort of in the spirit of that, I think Steven Spielberg's one sticking point with this being an album picture and uh, Scorsese directing it instead of him Apparently, he said to Scorsese, if you do this, what are you going to do with the family? Are they going to survive at the end? And Scorsese said, yeah, they'll live. Otherwise, there's no point to it. And then Spielberg said, well, you can do anything you like until that point. So you do have, ostensibly, the family survives. And it's, uh, I guess, in Spielberg's film, it'd be much more of an obviously happy ending. In this, Scorsese honors the agreement but they survive at what cost? Yeah. What have they lost yeah. on yeah. the way? <laughs> They're that, so broken. That voiceover. <laughs> like, yeah, don't talk yeah. about it, but uh, yeah. my life is over. Like, we all died that night, Yeah, basically, yeah. but we yeah. are still living. Like reminiscence. Yeah. 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 Oh. And they're all like, like even like you, to the point you were saying about Nolte kind of being like hunchbacked. And the, the way you're like reintroduced to uh, Jessica Lang and uh, Juliette Lewis after they've jumped off the mm. boat, they're all... They're, in this muddy bank yeah. and bloodied and just kind of like really like yeah. <laughs> like gone yeah. through the ringer and they're not even like they don't i i might be misremembering but in my head they don't even like embrace much either that's just this kind of think, slightly dazed and awkward like, i think they do that <laughs> bit but they're like you just have that like isn't it the juliet close-up and juliet lewis's eyes obviously tamir at the beginning but like mm. it's just like yeah yeah they're dead like that girl's <sighs> she is her life <laughs> she's never gonna get over this it's like imagine what happens to her so yeah she they didn't get they got an ending whether it's whether it's happy or not is yet to be determined yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) and 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 weirdly again to to bring it back to an amblin film that that came up uh last week as well even though this feels very very unamblin because it is hard R, it's a big 18 lots of swearing lots of violence more so than anything we've seen so far it is reminiscent weirdly of poltergeist again don't you think in, in terms of what the family's put through yeah what they have to face together how they're all brought to the end of their tethers and how the end point they are still together and alive but is it really a happy ending for them are they really in a mm. good place yeah it's not really a mm. victory in, in any way <laughs> but i think the difference, yeah but i suppose the difference is there is that they're not really bad like there's not they're not like morally questionable yeah. as people they're that's kind of true. like innocent that's true yeah they're quite yeah. innocent and actually what you realize this family they're not that innocent or like <laughs> i'd yeah. say i say the family's not that innocent but dad's clearly not innocent and again yeah the, the collateral damage of that is that there is, yeah bag. exactly <laughs> it's, like, it's like if i was lee i'd be divorcing his ass i'm like i'm done i'm out like you brought this on us, uh, we will never emotionally. Our marriage will never recover. <laughs> like that's it. Mm-hmm. I'd be, I'd be done. Bye, Sam. <laughs> yeah, uh, I do love that. This is, this is what you get when, like, Scorsese's even said as much. This is him seeing what he can do, actually working within the system to create something that is commercial and can be like sold as more of a kind of uh, movie going blockbuster an event and like it's like 
and this is the result of Martin <laughs> Scorsese going commercial in the early early nineties, and it's like yeah. it's kind of. And even to that point, it's kind of baffling that like even something like The Simpsons would choose something like this because <laughs> it is so extreme. <laughs> I think it. I think it was interesting because I was reading some of the kind of what the at the time some people said it was. Oh mm. God, why is he? I think it was like Roger Ebert. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because kind of like saying like, oh well, do we want him to do this? So he's like, why do we want our like this cinema extraordinaire like to go down that route? And it's so interesting that like, you can be snobby about. Like the snobbiness inherent, it seems seemingly inherent yeah. in the film critical community. That like, you know, when you look at what he's done since then, very commercial. Like exactly. there are so <laughs> many of his. I mean, bloody hell, Hugo! Like, come on, <laughs> like the yeah. like, that, that was super like commercial, and like you know, The Departed again, like super commercial films. Um, and it just goes to show yeah. how sensibilities change with the times. And 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 it's it's interesting because then you see like. Like they said, I mean, it's still a very well-made film. Um, and maybe at the time, obviously, it was a bit different to what he was doing anyway. But it's like, I sometimes think about that stuff when people get mad about, like, um, like directors who are, like, indie directors going on to do a superhero film. That's exactly like, what I was thinking about, yeah. Martin Scorsese <laughs> clearly doesn't want to be um, defined and, like, boxed in. Like, Ang Lee. Like, Ang Lee never does the same movie twice. I mean... Same themes. Yeah. I would still argue that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Sense and Sensibility are like like sister films. <laughs> well, they are sister films, but also sister, uh, Absolutely. sister films. Absolutely, yeah. Um, um, but I think like I, I we need to. I, I suppose as film lovers, I say this as a film lover. I think we should just let everyone have the freedom to do whatever they want to make, especially if the end product can be good. Yeah. And this is not defending all superhero films because not all superhero films are made are equal in quality, but. You know, I, I I find this some sort of like animosity or a, a kind of elitist attitude to anyone who wants to make a popular film. Like, it's like going back to where, wherever, like the 50s, 60s, and saying, oh, you want to make a Western? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Like, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know. I think there's this weird nostalgia. I mean, we have too much nostalgia, but I think we kind of talk about like, oh, the grand old days of Hollywood and stuff. And it's like, well, and they mm-hmm. say that every generation. It's always been the case. Yeah. yeah. It just, like, like, it's just the set dressing that's changed. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. And also we're making far more movies nowadays like than we ever made yeah. before. So the idea that you, that they're still in choice, sure, some things do get too much money. We have missed, I mean, everyone talks about like the studio system and like what's going on about it and saying it's not sustainable. And all I ever see is these things like saying the current system isn't working, but it's like, okay, well, what do we change it then? Give us, give us something else. Tell us how to change it. Because yeah, I, I, and so I suppose, yeah, it's interesting to see that someone who is now like the, the guy when it comes to number, like maybe like the head honcho literally can say what he wants. The idea that when he was making movies, he also had a period where people said he was too commercial. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of yeah. it's like this like cyclical nature of like how we see films and how we treat filmmakers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that he followed this up with the age of innocence is, <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that. <sighs> what a guy. What a guy. Yeah. <laughs> I kinda of like to maybe as a, a kind of point to uh slightly round it off i feel like i i think you i watched the making of where scorsese even kind of said this as well uh that you could you could see cape fear almost become like a a star is born kind of tradition where each generation kind of makes their own things so, so we had 
the novel in the 40s, you had the film in the 60s, 30 years later, Scorsese makes his. We're now due one, basically. <laughs> Would you? Could you see Cape Fear happening in the again in this kind of climate that we're currently in? Kind of speaking to that point, and is there kind of uh, an approach to Katie and uh, uh, Sam that you could could see working today? Just, I, I, I definitely take another one. I think it could definitely work. Certainly, in light of of, of the sort of sexual assault angles that this film is is approaching. My yeah. my one, um, my one request would be, please don't cast Tom Holland. <laughs> I'm not sure how. Where would he? Fit? I don't know. But he's, 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 he's sort of like Jerry, but he's still in it, isn't he? I think if, I, if I want it, I'd want it to be like like a Safdie Brothers version. Yeah. Or oh yeah. like, or I, I even think getting a. I mean, like, what if like Janixa Bravo, who did so well, like did this her version of this, and also. I don't know. It's a very obviously a very white movie. Like, how do you change it mm-hmm. when race yeah. becomes a factor yeah. in it? Uh, like, I think it could definitely be done, but I think it, it it's it's. I suppose with, with with this one, it's very clearly Scorsese's accent. You can hear it. You can see it. It's a visual language. Yeah. So it's like, who do we have? Who has got such? A, I want that distinctiveness. I want that distinctiveness that when you watch yeah. it, it's like. How do we make it our own? It's like I want this cover version to feel like you know, uh, you know, just say like Whitney Houston doing Dolly Parton. Like that's mm-hmm. what I want it to be, where it's like you don't even you forget mm-hmm. that there's even a Dolly. I will always love you as a Dolly Parton song. That's what it has to do. Um, and I think the fact that the Simpsons, yeah. I mean, clearly all the guys working like Matt Groening and stuff, or <laughs> massive fans, and it goes to show just stylistically how how pleasing yeah. it is, and how how so many of the images in the cinematography are so iconic. Uh, that you can do that. I mean, I mean, I do. I, I just remind me though, but even like the way that it marries its own like Simpsons bits, like where he keeps standing on like the, what are they call the forks, <laughs> the rakes, and it's like the rakes, the rakes. It's like, yeah, it's it's like, it's like oh, yeah. it's so good. And like, yeah, he's doing like what's it called? Just, I like the fact that they're throwing like Pirates of Penzance in, and like he's doing the whole what's it called? Yeah, what's the, what's the, what's the Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert and Sullivan. And it's just like I love it because it also plays like Sideshow Bob's ego. Yeah. I mean, Kelsey Grammer Guilty, yeah, has like charged. never been better, better cast than as being yeah. Sideshow Bob. Yeah. He was he's so good at it. Um, yeah. I think it was just perfect. And also, I love the fact again, which I was just saying about like the costumes, like Sideshow Bob wearing the <laughs> wearing the shirts and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. You need to make it stand out enough that the Simpsons would yeah. dedicate. It can't do that again. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. So, and I and I have every confidence that there are people out there who can do it. And you know, a Star Is Born, the one that Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga did. Yeah, it, it was really good, really mm-hmm. worth it. Um, be yeah. a very different movie with Beyonce though. I don't think it'd be. I don't think it'd be as good. I had, I just don't think Beyonce is a very yeah. good actress. I mean, she can sing, but like, yeah, it's interesting, like how certain things come together. And when all the things fit into mm-hmm. place, it's like it's like a weird like mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a chemistry like experiment, isn't it? To see what works out. But all the ingredients in this one absolutely just like chef's kiss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I fully agree. You need someone as distinct to make it completely different again. And uh, who knows? Now we've put this out in the universe. It, it might be one of these weird things where, like, in two weeks' time, we'll see a headline going: "Cape Fear remake now in development." <laughs> yeah, Safety Brothers. It's like who's been listening to this? Safety Brothers. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
I think that's a very nice that's <sighs> a very nice final word to have on the matter I think unless you've got any other points Hannah that you haven't uh, we haven't covered yet no, I, I, the only thing I want people to take away from this podcast is maybe some designer can kind of like do a special like <laughs> yeah. Max Cady yeah. collection. It's the, most, the most fraudulent <laughs> point, yes. Yeah, I think, honestly. <laughs> I, I feel like I was thinking about that. I was going to tweet it. I thought, I'll save it and I'll share it. And I was like, look, guys, I've made a pitch. <laughs> Talk to me. I'll be a tastemaker. And I'll come back and uh, fingers crossed. Some brand will want to work with me. But, but yeah, no, thanks for having me on to let me chat about it. I am... Um, so good. It's such it's a, a real good pleasure. chat about a film that's actually very good. Do you know what yes, I mean? Like yeah. the worst it part of my job nice, is not it? being good about films because I want every film to succeed. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice to look yeah. and it's also nice to revisit something and realise it still holds up. Yeah. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of times when you look back on stuff you're like, ooh, eek. Uh, <laughs> let's keep this one in in the library, in the closet, locked. I think it's very much fair to say that Cape Fear is still quite a potent mix. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you so much once again as well for joining us. I can't like, yeah, tell you how much we really appreciate it. And um, where can the good listeners find you and everything that you do, should they be so inclined? Oh, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Hannah Flint. And then if you want to listen to, I mean, I do quite a bit. I feel like I'd be <laughs> this an extra half hour of your podcast. We explain everywhere at work. But you can listen to the Fade to Black podcast, which is myself and fellow critics. I'm on Mormon and Cleesh Lockery if you would like weekly film reviews. And then I've done a little mini series called the First Film Club podcast where we speak to people about the first films they've made. We had like Michael Lehman talking about Heathers and uh, Frank Kranz talking about Mass recently. So and we're hopefully going to do season two soon enough. But we've got this week two more episodes coming out and it's about to go for one, uh, Playground and Prisoner of Azkaban. So yeah, so oh, in, awesome. in, enjoy. You'll be all the richer for it, listener. <laughs> Not financially, just culturally. <laughs> caveat. <laughs> I, I, don't, I can't pay you. <laughs> well, thank you very much again, Hannah, and take care. Thank you. Thanks. A big thank you once again to Hannah Flint for joining us for our discussion on Cape Fear there. An absolute delight to have her on and really do uh, check out Fade to Black and also First Film Club. They're exceptional podcasts and from a very, very enlightened figure, as I'm sure you could tell from our discussion there. Uh, Thank you, Hannah. All great listens. (laughs) But uh, now is the time that we switch the... We we switched the boards to hear what uh listeners had to say about uh about uh ye old Cape Fear. Um our good friend Michael Perry, of course, from uh back in the Land Before Time days, um oh. <laughs> replied to one of my tweets on the subject matter referring to the Simpsons episode Cape Fear, that's fear with an E on the end. Um 
So Cape Fear was truly the piece de resistance of this bounteous gift to the world. And he put up an image of uh, the Simpsons Springfield Murder Mysteries videotape, which also included Who Shot Mr. Burns Parts 1 and 2 and Black <laughs> Widower. Ah. <laughs> oh. Good tape. What? Which ones did you have? This is going to be boring as hell for the listener, but I mean, I'm I, genuinely curious. I only which, had um, two of Simpsons them, actually. Tapes? I only had two of them. I had uh, Bart Wards and... Uh, the Sim- yeah, I had Bart Wards and, too. And uh, the Simpsons Ghost, Simpsons Go to Hollywood. That, those were the two that I had. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I had Greatest Hits. That was a bit of a lame one. You have, like, um, the most of an open fire on there. You have Bart gets in there. I mean, all right, but not 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 as not as sexy or as exciting as the other ones. Yeah, I mean, my two like my probably top, my top two Simpsons episodes are Mayor to the Mob and Marge Not Be Proud, and they're both on uh, uh <laughs> ones on Bart Wars, <laughs> yeah. ones on the other one. So that that, that 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 might have something to do with why, but <laughs> they did their work. Yeah, uh, the other tweet we have in was similarly from a previous guest this time the wonderful harley mumford from fundamentals pod at fundamentals pod on twitter uh, along a similar vein to michael perry says i prefer the 1993 remake <laughs> of Cape Fear, which of course is the simpsons season five episode i had a feeling uh, that most of the responses if, if we were gonna get any for Cape Fear, would <laughs> yeah. be around the simpsons episode <laughs> <laughs> To be honest, man, and I don't think this is going to rock the boat too much, the 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 houseboat on the river Cape Fear. Um, I think the Simpsons version is the best version of Cape Fear. <laughs> I think I might slightly prefer the 62, but it's, it's a tight, it's a tightly, a tightly run race between all of them. Actually, no, it probably is the Simpsons one, isn't it? No, it's it pretty is. Tight. It is the Simpsons one. <laughs> I think it has to, because... It's a it's it's a perfect episode of, uh, of a comedy TV series. Um, but even though all of our tweets were regarding The Simpsons, I did um, I did tell my parents, who, as I mentioned previously, are big Cape Fear fans. I told them we were finally covering Scorsese's '91 uh, psychological thriller today, and my mum gave me permission to read out her response which was uh, one of Robert De Niro's one of Robert De Niro's best performances still makes chills run down my spine so tense I didn't realise this was a remake so I'm happy to, to bring that to your attention mum yes there is a version from almost 30 years prior which I dare say is even better thank you thank you very much Joe <laughs> I think this is the first message from a rambling mum thank you mum <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she'll be honoured. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't listen to podcasts, though. So. <laughs> so she'll never hear this. <laughs> but we gave you a shout out, Mum. Yeah. She'll feel it. She'll feel it in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so that about brings us up to Harbour on our episode on Cape Fear. Uh, a big thank you once again to Hannah Flint for... Very good. Bacon Away Toys. Yes. <laughs> I forgot that that was from that episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still want the kids, guys. And we're going back to more colourful, more family-friendly fare. Um, more <laughs> in our next episode. Quite Again, quite the, quite the pivot from <laughs> the tone of this one. Uh, for in our <laughs> next episode, we will be getting reacquainted with... Fievel and the rest of the Mousquits in the 1991 animated sequel, An American Tale, Fievel Goes West. 
And if you don't happen to have the film on disc, not to worry, it is available to stream for those of you that have a Netflix subscription. Otherwise, you can rent or buy the film digitally on Amazon, Apple TV, Chile, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Sky Store, and YouTube. No recruiting, I'm afraid. <laughs> ah, I love when you roll those R's, man. Um, yes, if you've got any any thoughts on An American Tale, Five or Goes West, do tweet us at ramblinamblin or email in at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com and let us know your two cents or more. And whilst you're at it, why not give us a little like, a subscribe, or leave a, even leave a little review on Apple. It does all help. Oh, um, there is a little we function. Said that for a while, have yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> there is also now a little function on the <laughs> on the Spotify app um, on your phones that, like, when you open up a podcast now uh, on its main page, you can add a little star rating. So if you feel like adding a little star rating for us, then uh, oh boy, that just be that just be swell. <laughs> yeah. Only five stars, though, please, because I breathe easily like a peach. <laughs> oh. Right then, I think that is just about time then for On Our Cape Fear episode. A big thank you to Hannah once again, and of course, a big thank you to all for listening. And we hope you join us as we go rootin' tootin' once again in the Old West, this time with an animated mouse, a cat, and a dog. <laughs> uh, until then... Or <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what he said... Until then, we all hope you hope you all take care. Um, to borrow a quote from Bill and Ted and Brett Goldstein, be be excellent to each other, and we'll see you next time out on the plains of the Old West. Ciao.